Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Well, hello, Abundant Life Church. It is so great to be with you guys. Uh, If you're new, my name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm returning from four weeks of a study leave. And uh, thank you, thank you. It's great to be back with you guys. And if you don't know what a study leave is, uh, it's something that we do in our church, and it's, it's allocated of what you do with your time. 60% is for retooling, uh, which is basically what are those things that would make me a better pastor uh, that I might not normally have the chance to spend time on. Uh, 20% is reflection, and so I had a chance to get away for a couple of nights by myself and, and just really listen and pray and just some incredible experiences there. And then 20% is rest and recreation and, and just recharging and, and feeling refreshed and uh, and. And so that all got to happen. I got to read 19 books this month, which for me is just like the best. Uh, and so I'm coming back and I'm so excited. But I gotta tell you, I missed you guys. I, I really missed you. And people have asked me, they're like, oh, are you bummed that you're back? It's like, no, I missed you. I'm so excited. Uh, I was reading about, you know, how do I prepare for this? And I was reading about astronauts coming back from space. I felt like that might be a good analogy uh, of going back into church ministry. And uh, they say that astronauts feel five times heavier when they come back uh, from outer space. And I gotta tell you, I feel five times lighter and more excited, so I'm gonna preach for like two hours today, and it is gonna be amazing. It's gonna be so good. Sorry for all the other services that we won't be able to have. Uh, I'm so excited. Uh, I wanna welcome you today. For those in the room with me, uh, if you're watching or listening online or through a podcast, uh, welcome to Abundant Life Church. If you're new with us, Uh, We are about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others, and we are so glad you're here. And before I begin today, I wanna just say a thank you to our staff that have been preaching this last month who did an incredible job and held it down, and absolutely, thank you for them as well. Today we're beginning a brand new series called Finding Jesus in Christianity. So if you've got a journal, I wanna encourage you to get that out. If you don't have a journal, I encourage you to get something to take notes with. And like we do each and every week, we're gonna encourage you to write some things down so that this would become uh, part of what springs you, you know, forward into other things with you and God this week. And so that this would give you some ideas, some things to, to process between you and God and you and uh, hopefully your life group as well would be great. And so we're in week one of our journals there. You'll see a spot in your journal to take notes. Also wanna invite you to go to John chapter five in your Bible. If you've got a physical analog Bible with you, that's in the New Testament. And so you're Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. uh, Get to chapter five. And if you've got a Bible app on a device or on a phone, encourage you to get that out as well. We want to read that together and encourage you to see that uh, in your own text as well. Now, today I'm gonna do something I don't normally do, but I want to recommend a book to you. Uh, If you are interested in reading a book, uh, this is uh, the book that launched me into thinking about this series. And so earlier this year, I read a book called Irresistible by Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley is a pastor in Atlanta, uh, a guy I have followed for a long time, and I think this is the best book he's ever written. I think this is the best book I have read in a long time. Our our whole eldership is reading through this. A number of our staff has read through this. Uh, This book is incredible. So if you are a reader, I wanna encourage you to put this on your list. I don't get a cut of this. 
The church doesn't get a cut of this. This is just, I believe in the content. I think Andy is helping us move forward of what does the church need to do uh, to, to get ready for where uh, you know, everything is going into the future. This book is incredible. And so we're not gonna do a study of this book. That's not what this series is. But I'm gonna use the premise of this book and I'm gonna quote Andy uh, throughout the series. And so I wanna encourage you to, to do this. If you don't like to read, but you're like, man, that sounds interesting. They have an audio uh, version of this. So you can go to audio or whatever, and you can get a version and listen to it. It is absolutely worth your time. And here's the deal. I believe in this so much. If you get this and you read it and you don't like it, Pastor Aaron Walton will give you your money back. (laughs) He doesn't know that, but he's a nice guy, and I bet he would if you asked him. So that's how good that book is. I wanna encourage you to get that. Sorry, Aaron. All right. Finding Jesus in Christianity. You might be wondering, where did Jesus go? I, I thought that Christianity had Jesus. I'm, I'm confused on the very premise of this series. Well, the reality is, if, if you've been paying attention, uh, there's a number of people who, who experience Jesus, who, who know Jesus, and then they walk away from Jesus. And, and you might go, well, what happened? How, how does that happen? And, and recently, I've just been watching as a couple, in particular, uh, notable Christians in the last two months, have walked away. These are not like fringe people you go, oh, I don't really know how deep they were, but, but people who uh, were on the inside of what it meant to be a Christian and, and have since walked away. Let me share a number of these examples. One is a guy named Marty Sampson. Marty is a, uh, a writer and a singer uh, for Hillsong. If you like worship music, uh, you no doubt have heard of Hillsong. Uh, this is one of the guys at the core of Hillsong. This is, again, uh, one of the guys that writes the music that we sing about, that we often use in our church and, and uh, all of our campuses. And, and this allows us to express what God is doing. And, and you go, wait, wait, a guy like that? Like a, a worship leader? And let me share what, what he recently posted. He said, why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be loved yet send four billion people to a place? All because they don't. Believe, no one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. What happens when the worship leaders are the ones saying, yeah, I don't, I don't know about this thing anymore. I, I don't know, it's, it's not for me. What is that indicating for us? I watched that, and I watched another guy named Joshua Harris. Uh, You may know that name. Joshua Harris is a former pastor. Uh, He wrote a wildly successful, best-selling book uh, a number of years ago called I Kissed Dating Goodbye, uh, which if you were raised in the Christian uh, community like I was, uh, became this like uh, this huge book on the purity culture. And I was raised with this. And this is how you follow Jesus. And, uh, and, and he uh, not only renounced that book, renounced all of it, uh, but he's, he's had a whole change of thought on all of this. He recently posted this. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not... A Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. See, church, I think we have to acknowledge, even if you feel great about your Christianity, that there is something shifting around us, that there's an entire generation of people who are asking different questions, who are wrestling with different issues, and the Christianity that has been passed on is not holding up well. 
And a number of people are beginning to go, what, what do we do with this? And so I wanna ask today, have you ever had some of these thoughts? Have you ever wrestled with some of the things that, that these guys are wrestling with? Have you ever gone, yeah, I, I don't know about that either? I did a little uh, survey on my Instagram this week just to see uh, how many people that I'm connected with would relate with some of these struggles as well. And so I said, hey, how many of you have, have struggled to make sense of the Bible? And of the Christians uh, that took the survey, 80% said, yes, I have struggled. It was far higher than I was anticipating. I asked, how many of you would say you've ever struggled to make sense of hell? And 74% said, yes, I've struggled to make sense of that. And so we can relate with what these guys are saying. I also asked, how many of you have felt your, your, your view of Jesus shift over the years? And I was a little surprised, only 22% said yes to that one. But I look at my own life, I would answer yes to all three. I have struggled with the Bible, I have struggled with hell, I have struggled to make sense of who Jesus is. But I would also say that over the years, my view of Jesus has shifted. Now, the reason it has shifted is because I had to make sense of the Bible, I had to make sense of hell. And so I realized I'm gonna have to rework some of this, and as I have done it, I've been able to go, okay, I'm not spun up about hell, and I'm not spun up about the Bible because of who I have found in Jesus. Now, that might sound a little bit uh, too loosey-goosey for you. Maybe you're going, whoa, I'm not comfortable with that. But I want you just to think about relationships that you have, and, and, and don't good relationships change? Like when you're a kid, if you have a healthy relationship with one of your parents, uh, that relationship probably isn't the same as it is today. And if you're still connected to one of your parents and you say, yeah, I still have that really close relationship, it has probably changed in a number of ways. You probably know them and experience them in radically different ways. My three-year-old interacts with me differently than my 10-year-old does. And that will keep changing as they get older and we have more experiences together. And it has been uh, true with me and Jesus as well, I've kept growing and kept learning and, and Jesus has changed my view on a number of things. Now in this last month as I've been preparing for this, I decided to read from a number of atheists. I wanted to, to hear what are the best arguments that are against Christianity right now. Those who are saying, look, this is dumb to spend your time on. Why are they saying that? I, I wanna understand these arguments. I wanna understand their point of view. And so uh, one of the books I read that was uh, uh, really well-written was a book called Letter to a Christian Nation uh, by a guy named Sam Harris. Now, you may know uh, of the name Sam Harris. He's a notable atheist and, and uh, one of the guys basically on a crusade to say this whole Christianity thing makes no sense. And so I read this book. Now, I'm not recommending this per se to you. I'm gonna summarize a lot of this, though. So I'm gonna give you the flavor of some of these arguments because here's what I realized. He is uh, acutely aware of the failures of Christianity. And I'm acutely aware of the failures of Christianity. I just see it from a different angle than, than Sam does. Uh, I wanna share a few of the things that he says, and, and some of this I'd go, yeah, this, this is not wrong. He says this, relieving suffering seems to rank rather low on your list of priorities. This is interesting to me because often the way Christians caricature an atheist is that atheists don't care about anyone. But notice that that's his argument back to us. You guys are the ones that don't actually care about people who are suffering. It was just a little bit surprising. That was one of his arguments. And he elaborates on why, and he says this. We might also wonder in passing, which is more moral, 
Helping people purely out of concern for their suffering or helping them because you think the creator of the universe will reward you for it, right? There's, there's some logic there. You go, okay, is the reason why we might help someone because ultimately there's something in it for us or because we really care that deeply? See, Harris's argument is we help people and there's no benefit to us. You help people because you think God's going to reward you. And you can see the issue he takes with that. He also says this, widespread belief in God does not ensure a society's health. That just because a lot of people in a culture say that they're Christian doesn't suddenly mean it's going to be a very healthy culture. And I would say history has proven him right on this. That you can look throughout many examples of Christian nations and there's many things that look nothing like Jesus at all. And so he's going, look, the facts are there. One more that he says. It says, the conflict between science and religion is reducible to a simple fact of human cognition and discourse. Either a person has good reasons for what he believes or he does not. And Harris's view throughout the book is Christians do not have a good reason for what we believe and, and only the atheists are honest in, in acknowledging this. And so again, I want you to wrestle with, have you ever felt any of these things? As I was reading this, I realized that Harris assumes the wrong things about the essence of what Christianity is. And I can illustrate this with one of his uh, passages that he says. He says, the idea that the Bible is a perfect guide to morality is simply astounding given the contents of the book. Now, you might think as an atheist, he doesn't really understand the Bible. He probably knows the Bible better than many of us. He says, admittedly, God's counsel to parents is straightforward. Whenever children get out of line, we should beat them with a rod. And then he quotes Proverbs in three different places. He says, if they are shameless enough to talk back to us, we should kill them. And he quotes Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Mark, and Matthew. We must also stone people to death for heresy, adultery, homosexuality, working on the Sabbath, worshiping graven images, practicing sorcery, and a wide variety of other imaginary crimes. Then he concludes with this. How then can you argue that the Bible provides the clearest statement of morality the world has ever seen? Have you ever had some of these thoughts? Can you resonate with some of the logic there? Is our only solution to these issues to walk away from Christianity altogether? Well, I want you to notice if anything is missing in these arguments. Since I read Harris's book, I noticed there's one glaring omission that he doesn't seem to talk much about, and that's the person of Jesus. You see, Harris's critique is that Christianity essentially, in his assumption, equals the Bible. And so all of his critique is aimed at the Bible because that's what he thinks is the essence of Christianity. And sadly, many Christians today would go with that as well and go, yeah, that is what Christianity is. It is the Bible. And if that is what your faith is built on, you might really struggle if you were to read that book. It might really create a, a, a question of your faith. And this is what we see happen with a number of our students when they go to college that we have given them these answers that we think are good enough, and all it takes is one college professor to completely rip apart their faith. 
and they do it by critiquing the Bible. And so what we're gonna do next week, you're not gonna miss next week, I'm gonna do an entire message just on how to think of the Bible. How do we read the Bible? How do we understand the Bible? What should we do in regards to the Bible? And so that'll be next week. But I, I, I gotta ask the question, how did we get here? How do we get to the place where we're all kind of wondering what is the essence of Christianity? What is this thing built on? How do we really know? Is, is, is Sam Harris right? Is someone else right? How do we know what this thing is built on? And, and as I have been wrestling with this question for, for weeks now, I, I saw uh, something, a video online that I thought, that's a great analogy to this conversation. And so I wanna give you a, a little picture here that I think is gonna help us as we think about this series. And, and this is a, a video that I saw posted. This is a real video, this is not something I made up. Uh, I saw this posted online, and I thought, that's a great analogy. Check out this cooking recipe. That should take you like 40 minutes, you know, and then you can whip that together real fast. Um, yeah, I don't know about you. I thought that recipe was gonna end like five different times. I'm like, oh, it's a chicken breast recipe. Nope, it's a dip. Nope, it's like, it just kept going. I'm like, what is this? And in case you're wondering, this is a real recipe, guys. They call it the deep fried barbecue chicken stuffed pizza dia. If you need that many words to describe your dinner, you're doing it wrong, okay? That's all I'm gonna say. But here's what you gotta wonder. Does something get better or worse as it keeps going? Does it get better or worse? Because we have to acknowledge it could go either direction. There are some things that the longer they go on, they only get better, right? There are other things I would suggest the recipe you just saw that is not getting better. At some points, I'm like, ooh, I'm hungry, that looks good. Then by the end, I'm like, I'm out. I'm out, that looks disgusting, I can't do it. And so you gotta ask, is it getting better or is it getting worse when it comes to Christianity? So here's a question, if you're writing things down, uh, I would suggest this is one of the most important questions that we as the Christians who are entrusted with the faith today can ask ourselves. Is Christianity about a book or an event? Is Christianity about a book or an event. Now, I, I, I cannot uh, highlight how important I think this question is. Here's what I would say, suggest. That the future of the church in America is dependent on the way you and I answer this question. That the way you and I answer this question, I, I, I don't think this is an overstatement, might suggest whether or not our children and their children will call themselves Christians. And so you can say, oh, yeah, no, they just need to be Christians like I'm a Christian. They just need to understand it like I understand it. You are missing what is happening around us if you do not answer this question. Now, you might go, well, what's the right answer? Well, let's figure out what, what would Jesus say? If we were to, to go to the scriptures and go, what do we find from him? What example would he indicate? Uh, I think this is how we begin to navigate this. Now, I wanna invite you to John chapter five, if you've got your spot there. We're gonna begin reading in verse 39. And what we're gonna pick up on is a conversation between Jesus and the religious elite of his day. These were the guys that knew the Old Testament better than anyone. They had memorized it. They had studied it. They had given their life 
to it. And so Jesus is having a conversation with them, and it's a little bit like who's the smartest when it comes to their Bible knowledge, right? And you have this conversation. You can imagine everyone else watching going, oh man, Jesus versus the Pharisees. Who's gonna win this one? But I want you to notice the nature of Jesus's argument here. John chapter five, verse 39. To these religious leaders, he says this. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And they'd be like, yep, that is what we have. And he says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. These two verses, as I have stared at these, have shaped me and been working on me for these last five years and helping me to, to understand how do I put all of this in perspective. Jesus looks at these people who had given their lives to the study and he says, you think that in the scriptures you have life. Now this is not like metaphorically true, like oh you just kind of think that. You, this is literally what they taught. Now, in Judaism at this time, you gotta understand, there was the written uh, word, which was the Torah, that's the, the beginning of the Old Testament, so they have the Old Testament, the, the, the prophets and the law and all that. There's also the oral tradition, and that was what the rabbis would pass down generation after generation of how do you live this stuff out? And so if you read the Old Testament, it's pretty confusing when you get into all 600 plus law uh, of what you have to do, and so these rabbis would try to make sense of it. No, this is how you do it, this is how you do it. Well, that eventually was written down, and that's become known as the Mishnah, which is the written, the written oral tradition uh, of these rabbis passed down. Now, I want to show you uh, what was in the Mishnah, because this explains what Jesus was addressing when he says this. This is what the Mishnah taught. The more study of the law, the more life. If a man has gained for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. This is literally what the rabbis were teaching, that if you want life, you go to the law. And this is not just you know, law in the sense that we think of it today. This is the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law, the Hebrew law that it was given to Moses. They believed and they taught you would find life when you found it in the law. And to that, Jesus says, nope. And you can imagine I'm going, what? He's like, no. That's not true. You, this is according to Jesus. According to Jesus, you will not find your life in the Bible. They might be going, I cannot believe a pastor just said that. I am paraphrasing Jesus here. This is what his argument is. According to Jesus, if you want life, it is never gonna come from a text. It is gonna come from Jesus. And so we gotta start going, okay, where are we expecting to find our life today? Are we committing the same mistake that the, the Pharisees were, the religious leaders, they were finding their life in the text, and Jesus says, you're missing it. It's all about me, and you refuse to come to me. You see, you can study the Bible and never find Jesus. Or you can study the Bible and you can make Jesus just one voice of many other voices. And yet that is the opposite of what Jesus is instructing us here. He's saying it all points to me, which is why A.W. Tozer, a, a great thinker and a theologian and author, uh, he said it like this. God's word in the Bible can have power only because it corresponds to God's word in the universe. 
You see, we're not just reading a dated text, but, but there's something about the living God that when you realize this is all pointing us to Jesus, then all of a sudden the reason why these words have power is because they are illuminating the living person of Jesus. And Jesus taught this numerous ways. Let me show you another conversation. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is having a conversation after he has already resurrected. So his disciples have seen him killed on a cross. Uh, they, they waited around while he was dead. He's brought back to life and then he shows up and he has a conversation with his disciples who had just spent three years pursuing him, watching his ministry day in and day out. And in this, this setting, he has this conversation with them. Luke 24, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They'd be going, whoa, what? We understand the Old Testament. We understand it. What do you mean how slow we are? Jesus says this, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, this is the law and the prophets this is the way they thought of the Old Testament, uh, what we would call the Old Testament. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. How slow you are to put it together, to connect the dots, to realize that this whole thing is about me. And Jesus goes, why are you looking at that and you don't find me? You don't realize what I'm offering you? And so today we read the Bible to help us see Jesus, not to find our life apart from him. And so let me give you a little pastoral tip that I have learned in my own life that, that may be of benefit to you. When you are reading the Bible, um, the way most of us read it is we go, okay, maybe you have a Bible reading plan, I'll open it up, but these are my passages for the day, and we read it, and, and some days maybe you feel like, yeah, I got a lot out of it, and some days you're like, yep, it was good, whatever. Here's what I have found. When I get the most out of my Bible reading is when before I open a page, I, I say a simple prayer. Jesus, I'm gonna read this, and I am asking you to show me yourself. That as I read this, would you please open my eyes to see you and what I'm about to read? Because I believe that all of this is trying to point me to you. Would you help me read it and in this way? And when I do that, I get so much more out of my Bible reading than if I just plow through my readings for the day. Because the Bible is the only book you will ever read where the author is available to join you every time you read it. And if you read it and you don't take a fact that the author is sitting there, it's a little bit silly to read the Bible and go, I'm gonna memorize it, I'm gonna read it, and yeah, yeah, Jesus is in there somewhere. She's like, hey, it's all about me. And so we read it to help us see Jesus. And when you read it in that way, it will come alive. It will also help you begin to realize what is the essence of Christianity? How does this all go together? Now, I wanna give you the premise that Stanley sets up in his book here. Uh, that uh, I'm gonna share that premise in this series as well because I think this is so well-worded and so thought through. And so I wanna encourage you, this is worth writing down and staring at and pondering and going, how do we make sense of all of this? Here's what Stanley says. We must tether the faith of this generation to the event that sparked the movement that brought us the Bible. Write that down, I'm gonna repeat it. We must tether 
the faith of this generation to the event that sparked the movement that brought us the Bible. This is how Stanley would offer how you begin to make sense of all of these elements. How do we make sense of the event? How do we make sense of the movement? How do we make sense of the Bible? This is the way he would offer us, and I think there is so much value in this perspective. Now, I said next week we're gonna talk about the Bible, okay? That's all next week. Uh, you might be going, what event is he talking about? That's gonna be weeks three and four of this series. We're gonna look at the event, uh, the Bible. The movement is what we're a part of right now. This is the movement, the thing called the church that began all the way back then that we are continuing in today. But as I was thinking about all this, and I've had a lot of time to reflect this last month, I began to wonder, why does it seem that there are far more bad examples of Christianity than there are good examples? Like if you gave me two pieces of paper and you said, okay, just off of your memory, write down every bad Christian you can think of and every good Christian you can think of. That's like a bad example, good example. I bet I could fill out the bad page far easier than I could fill out the, the good page. Why? Why is that the case? I think if we're honest, we have to acknowledge that for a lot of people, Christianity looks like the recipe that keeps going. It keeps morphing and morphing, and it might have looked good at one point, but it, as it keeps morphing, as it keeps getting different, at some point people go, I'm not interested anymore. It doesn't look appealing anymore. I don't even know what that is anymore. And, and, and that might not be true for you, but if you look around you, you look at our culture right now, many people look at Christianity in that way. Is it the recipe that has just kept going and going and going? Or let me give you another analogy. I bought a book at Powell's this last month, and I love Powell's. Uh, I went, got, got a book at Powell's, and it was a used book. And, uh, and so uh, as I got this book, I looked on the back cover, and they had the little barcode sticker from Powell's, you know, put on, on the, the back. And, and whenever I buy a book, I'm like, it's my book now. So I take the sticker off. So I remove the sticker, and perfectly placed underneath my barcode sticker was another barcode sticker. I'm like, that's weird. So I pulled that one off, and perfectly placed underneath that barcode sticker is another barcode sticker. I'm like, how many times has this thing been sold? And so I just keep pulling it off. Five different stickers that I pulled off to finally get down to the original barcode on the back of the book. One of the stickers was from Missouri. This sticker had gone through the Oregon Trail just to get on its way to me, right? And I'm looking at it going, this book has been someplace. This has seen some things. But the reality is in all of that journey, the book had maintained what it was. It wasn't a, suddenly a different story. It wasn't a Missouri version. Of this. The, the book was the same. So here's the question. Is Christianity like the recipe that keeps going on and on and on and on? Or is Christianity like the book that we go, yeah, it's the same book. It's just been through a lot of different cultures. It's been through a lot of different things. Does it look the same if the early church were to walk in, if the, the disciples could walk into our gatherings today, would they recognize it? Or would they go, what have you done with the recipe? What have you done? See, the early church began, not because of a book. The early church began because of the person of Jesus, because of what they watched happen to him. They watched him killed, and they watched him brought back to life. And they said, you know what? We need to tell everyone about this because this changes everything. And so they wrote it down. And they said, you need to know what we have witnessed, what we have seen, because this changes everything. So have we carried that baton? Have we passed it on well? Or has it changed in the process? Well, let me give you one way to test this. 
One of the insights that Stanley says is this. People who were nothing like Jesus liked him. And Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. You get this if you read the Gospels. You see this is incredibly true about Jesus. But this is not the way most people would describe Christianity today. If you talk to an atheist, if you talk to a non-Christian, you go, hey, do you, do you feel like the, the church is known for, for liking people that are nothing like us? When they're done laughing at you, they'll say no, right? Like, no, you're not known for that. See, guys, the recipe has changed because we thought that to be a good Christian was, was about the wrong things and we forgot that we are supposed to be the people that look like Jesus. We're supposed to be the people that are passing on what we saw him do. And to whatever degree today we go, oh, that is not true today. We have become the recipe that has changed. And so if this is true, Stanley says, therefore, as followers of Jesus, we should be known as people who like people who are nothing like us. Can I get an amen? amen? We should be the church that people go, wow, I don't look like them, but they like me. And I'm drawn to them and I'm, I wanna be around them and I, I wanna figure out what is it that they have because man, that looks appealing to me. And if you follow a person rather than a book, you, you begin to take this serious. And so I'm gonna give you all a little bit of homework. That's right, I'm back. <laughs> Here's my homework and I encourage every single one of you, write this down. I'm not gonna tell you what to do. I'm gonna give you a prompt between you and Jesus. Okay, so this is like, not like, oh, Jeremy said, no, no, Jeremy gave you a prompt that you gotta go work through with Jesus this week, the real living person of Jesus. Write this down. What can I do this week to show love to someone who is nothing like me? If all you care about is the book, all right, yeah, someone's with me. If all you care about is the book, not, not a real pressing question, but if you are following the person of Jesus, you gotta wrestle with this one. And so I'm not like, hey, the rest of my life, let's just boil it down to a week, right? What can I do this week to show love to someone who is nothing like me? Now you might be going, Jeremy, I don't want to. <laughs> and you begin to figure out what kind of a Christianity are we creating here? What kind of a Christianity are we showing to the world? Yeah, but they're weird. Yeah, but they like do things and they believe weird things and they do weird things. And yeah, you know what? Jesus was the kind of guy that like those people wanted to be around. Can we pass that on today? Can we show people Jesus today who are nothing like us? I'm gonna close telling you the story of my, my first ever convert in my ministry career. I was in, in middle school and uh, we'll call him Matt uh, was my best friend, and, uh, and I remember uh, Matt was opposite to me in just about every way possible. Uh, I was, as you might imagine, not a very big guy. Uh, Matt was 6'4", okay, which was very strategic to have a friend like 6'4 when you're little in middle school. And, and so Matt was big, I was small. I was a lover, Matt was a fighter. Okay, he was more of both, but I'm trying to give myself something here. Uh, but I was raised with Christian parents who introduced Jesus to me at a young age, Matt was not. And so I remember in our friendship, uh, I was the first person that ever really introduced Matt to Jesus. And, and Matt was wild, and he had a background, and he had a story and all of this already in middle school, but he liked Jesus, and, and he was intrigued by Jesus, and he never heard of Jesus like this. So I remember, you know, one day as we were talking about this, Matt goes, I, I wanna become a Christian. 
I, I wanna follow Jesus like that. I couldn't believe that. I was like, yes, Matt, let's do this. And, and so Matt was the first person I ever baptized. And it was awkward, I had to like get my legs in it because he was so big and, and you know, I had to do that. And, and it was so amazing that, man, look, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm making disciples of all nations. Then I realized how hard it is when you actually bring someone to Jesus because just because they've decided to follow Jesus doesn't mean they suddenly look like a Christian. You know what I mean? And so Matt had a whole lot of behaviors and a whole lot of learned things and he was still the guy he was, but, but he had met Jesus and he was trying to become someone else. And so he was in the process of discipleship. And I'll never forget one day at school, uh, he got detention for getting in a fight. He was always getting in fights and, and he would win these fights and then he'd be all victorious until he'd get detention for it. And so he got detention. I said, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll meet up with you afterwards. And, and so uh, I meet with him after he has served his time in detention and I'll never forget, he had this big smile on his face. Like, why, why are you smiling? He goes, you'll never believe what I did. I was like, what? And he goes, I wrote a Bible verse on the wall. I said, you... You wrote a Bible verse on the wall of detention? He goes, yeah, isn't that awesome? And, uh, and I was like, all right, which verse? And, and at this point, Matt only knew one verse. Like, that's all he understood. He hadn't memorized much, but he knew John 3.16, right? It's the, it's the go-to. John 3.16, it's a great verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Come on, somebody, that, that's good stuff. Yes, we love that. Here's the problem. Uh, Matt remembered the verse wrong. <laughs> and so instead of writing John 3.16, he wrote John 3.17, which says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him said, Matt, that's actually a better verse for detention, if you think about it. I mean, that better fits the context. The Spirit of God was already working through him to contextualize Scripture. Here's the reality, though. Matt liked the Bible, didn't really understand it that much, but he liked it. But he had met Jesus. And that is what fueled him forward. He had lots of bad theology, lots of misunderstandings, and he was gonna keep pursuing Jesus through all of it. And I wonder... Can we get back to that, to that essence of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna try to use the Bible to see Jesus, but I'm going to follow the person of Jesus. We must tether the faith of this generation to the event that sparked the movement that brought us the Bible. What is the faith of this generation and the next generation and the next generation? What is that faith worth to us? Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, may we find you in our expressions of Christianity. As we gather as your church, as we pursue you through the scriptures, may we not ever forget that this was built on you, on what a group of people watched you do. And they have told us about it. And so we can now go back to you and yet we wrestle with all sorts of questions and, and many would suggest that if you have these questions, you should just walk away from all of it. And yet may we find you at the center of all of this. That when we have questions about this, may we go back to the person of Jesus. And Jesus, we ask that you would give us the clarity and the boldness to live out our expression of the church in a way that actually looks like you. 
that the people who looked nothing like you, that liked you, would like us too, and would be drawn to us as well. And we believe you would literally change the world with Christians like that. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would bring us back to the event, spark the movement that brought us the Bible, that you would focus us on the person of Jesus, and you would give us such clarity to see you in ways we've never seen you before. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.